From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief Radio. I'm Alliance President Rabbi Jack Moline in Washington, D.C., filling in this week for your host, Reverend Welton Gaddy. Is this the moment to reform gun laws? You know, it's, it's easy to go to politics. But it's important. It's at the heart of the issue. I, I get that that's where the media likes to go. No, it's not. It's where many of the people we've talked to here like to go. The proposals from Democrats in the media. But why does this only happen in your country? I really think that's what many people around the world just, they cannot fathom. Why only in America? Why is this American exceptionalism so awful? You know, I'm sorry you think American exceptionalism is awful. It was another unthinkable tragedy. A mass shooting at a Texas elementary school. A nation flooded with reports in real time, the number of casualties going up and up as one victim after another took their last breath at the local hospital. Now the death toll stands at 21, and arguments about what to do can be a comforting distraction from the helplessness most of us are feeling. On this week's show, the Reverend Rob Shank, president of the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute, will bring us his insights on gun culture and religious contexts and the impact that has on the chances for meaningful change. This is an apocalypse, an unveiling, a a meltdown. And uh, people are reeling all over the country right now, not just uh, Baptists, but also the entire uh, evangelical world. A sweeping report on a history of cover-up and victim-blaming in the largest Protestant denomination in this country has finally seen the light of day. And it indicts both individuals and structures. Religion News Service national reporter Bob Smetana has been on this beat for a long time, and he'll share his observations at this historical moment. Many American conservatives see Orban's Hungary as this sort of anti-woke paradise. Uh, They see Viktor Orban as being a bit of a hero, and they see someone who has made God, homeland, and family a cornerstone of his government. And those three words, God, homeland, and family, are actually the theme of this conference. Uh, The Americans here want to emulate him, and so they're here to learn how. We mentioned it last week. Prominent America First conservatives recently unfurled the CPAC flag in of all places, authoritarian-ruled Budapest, Hungary. Even as the EU weighs sanctions against the anti-democratic policies of Prime Minister Viktor Orban, an international nationalism seems to be taking form and relying on religious, racist, and homophobic rhetoric in the process. Journalist Sarah Posner will share her observations with us. I'm Ray Kirstein at the intersection of religion, government, and death. Here's another in the endless stream of fundraising emails from the Multi-Million Dollar Family Research Council. This one headlined, Help Protect Our Children. There's even an exclamation point. But don't think for one minute the fundraising email is referring to yet another unthinkable mass shooting, a blatant violation of Thou Shalt Not Kill turbocharged by the NRA and the God and Guns crowd. No, even as the nation grieves and almost two dozen families find themselves destroyed forever, the Family Research Council is hyperventilating about the possibility that some states are following science and restricting ex-gay abuse, while it also applauds Alabama and Arkansas in joining the dark ages of criminalizing support and care for transgender youth. That's the focus, folks. Send your generous donations now. On Thursday, in the aftermath of the Texas shooting, students at schools across the country walked out of their classrooms in a desperate plea for gun safety. According to CBS News, after the 2018 school shooting in Parkland, Florida, tens of thousands of students descended on Washington in what they called a march for our lives. 
Now another rally is being organized in Washington, D.C. on June 11th. And on Friday, a large contingent of interfaith activists and religious leaders held a protest at the National Rifle Association Convention taking place in Houston, Texas. Our program airs every weekend on radio stations nationwide, and it's available as a podcast on iTunes and other leading podcast platforms. I urge you to subscribe to it today. State of Belief Radio is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you've made a donation this week, please let me say a very heartfelt thank you. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And now to our first guest. When the Reverend Rob Shank walked away from a powerful leadership position on the evangelical right in this country, it was his reversal on absolutist anti-abortion positions that got the most attention, as did his renouncing his harsh anti-gay beliefs. But this transformation came as the result of a school shooting that compelled him to expose gun idolatry that he saw as rampant in the church. Now with another massacre of school children prompting some measure of reflection among many Americans and hostile circling of the wagons among pro-gun forces for whom Texas has long been the promised land, we wanted to get a look at what the dynamics seem to be that keep so many on the religious right impervious to the human suffering that results from their rhetoric. Rob, welcome back to State of Belief Radio. Thank you, Jack. It's always a pleasure. Uh, So, Rob, by your estimation, how prevalent is an absolutist view on the Second Amendment among the influential political evangelicals you knew so well? Well, I'd have to distinguish between private and public um, convictions on that, because I believe there are secret doubters who are compelled by their constituencies, by their fundraising operations, and certainly by their vote-getting operatives to take a different public um, directed stand. I'd say there's privately, there's a mix of opinions, but publicly it's overwhelmingly supportive of an unfettered, unqualified uh, embrace of what they would classify as Second Amendment gun rights. So the right of an individual to purchase any weapon for any reason and carry it openly at any time, anywhere in the United States and actually in their minds around the world because it's 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 a god-given right so it it's an overwhelming embrace of what i call popular and reckless gun culture so i'm i'm fascinated by this notion of private versus public conviction and you know better than most rob that that when you change your mind on something essential to to your imagining of yourself it's not a switch that flips it is something that happens over a period of time, even if you can identify a starting point. What is it that prevents 
people who are influential and in these uh, and and in the mode of private conviction about the need for certain limitations on the Second Amendment, what is it that prevents them from using their bully pulpit to do the right thing? Well, partly, and um, and I say this um, with a certain measure of sadness. My religious community, that is white American evangelicals, do not engage in critical thinking. It, it's, it's, first of all, not part of the ethos, the culture. Secondly, it's, it's deemed to be contrary to faith, that faith is an absolute, unquestioned, obedience to the dogma, the collective consensus of the evangelical, uh, of evangelical Christianity. You know, of course, we have no hierarchies. Virtually every evangelical church is autonomous. Every congregation is autonomous. So it's a collective opinion. And sadly, stronger than that, lamentably, um, I, I, I alluded to it before, but the fundraising, um, vote getting, and celebrity uh, element of American evangelicalism has has um, dominated, utterly dominated, the church now for arguably forty years, and as a result, to challenge any of the, the dogma that emits from these communications, uh, millions upon millions, I mean, hundreds of millions of emails every year, thousands of websites, uh, hundreds of major publications, lots of celebrity preachers and uh, voices and so forth. And they have all agreed that the the notion of an empowered constituency uh, giving individual evangelical Christians the power to defend themselves, principally against a federal government they hold in great suspicion, is is not only um, necessary and and constitutionally protected, but is actually a, a, a spiritual obligation to protect oneself, one's family, one's fellow believers against the imagined threat uh, is actually a, um, a divine obligation. So that's the place that we're in. And uh, as a result, I, I think we are fostering a very, very dangerous subculture in American life. Wow. Your, your mentioning of uh, a rejection of critical thinking has guaranteed that you'll be back on the show at some point in the future to talk with me about uh, public education and its emphasis on critical thinking. But uh, since I've raised the subject of schools, uh, sadly, mass shootings, including of school children, are nothing new in this country. In your experience, 
How did pro-gun religious conservatives reconcile public tragedies like the one in Texas this week with their deeply held beliefs, especially of the sanctity of life? Um, well, the best way I can explain that is um, through referencing a sermon that I carried around all over the country uh, during my halcyon days in the religious right wing. And uh, it was all about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and, uh, you know, blame shifting and deflecting responsibility. So uh, when God uh, holds Adam to account, he points to his wife, to Eve, uh, who points to the serpent uh, and, and ultimately to the creator of the serpent. And fingers are going everywhere except to one's own, uh, you know, heart and, and, and soul. I wish I would have listened more carefully to my own sermon in those days, because I did plenty of that myself. And there is a deflection that there's, there's um, a blame shifting that occurs. So it's not the recklessly irresponsible politicians that we have helped elect uh, to office or get appointed um it's sin satan the devil the evil of the human heart um neither we nor the people that we sponsor are to blame here it's someone or something else ultimately it, it's that serpent in the garden uh and so and by the way you know god made the serpent so um Ultimately, you know, God allows these things. We don't know why, and we dare not ask why. You are someone who has, who has dissented, and you dissented very publicly. But there are millions of people who listen to these messages week in and week out. There must be dissent somewhere. How is dissent handled if someone dares to speak up and say, this doesn't sound right to me? Well, here's where I get a little hopeful about my tribe, because dissent is, is first whispered and tentatively, like, you know, I have these thoughts, I don't know if they're right, but uh, sometimes I think, and then maybe their interlocutor sends back a positive signal. Yeah, you know, I have those thoughts too. And sometimes I wonder if, and then they decide to tell a third, and the third says, boy, I've been thinking the same thing, and it's not just me. There are others, too. And suddenly, you, you get at least some kind of momentum. And because everything is done by consensus in the evangelical world, or at least by a, a kind of acquiescence, Whoever has the loudest voice and, and starts speaking over others tends to start carrying an argument. And up until now, that's been entirely the boorish, I think, uh, dangerous, uh, thoughtless 
and, and contemptuous voices uh, within the evangelical community. But there are a whole lot of other really good people. I know them, but they are afraid to speak because they will be punished. Uh, first, uh, socially isolated, if not ostracized. Uh, they will be besmirched, um, probably called, you know, at least a doubter, if not a, a child of the devil, um, rebellious, and so forth. So there's a lot of fear that, that keeps those voices suppressed. But if we can foster them and, and help them, and I hear from them every day, every day, uh, Jack, I hear from pastors, um, lay people, a lot of young people, of course, uh, um, to be expected, who say, you know, I, I feel the same way you do, or I was ahead of you. Uh, and, and we're starting to see a community build. And, and that's the only hope there is for American evangelicalism. If not, I believe we're we're um, on a, on our way towards first a moribund religious movement. How long it may uh, survive, I don't know. But um, and we could get very dangerous along the ro- road to our demise. Well, that's worth diving into. But but first, I want to ask you about another term that. Uh, is certainly uh, problematic in the circles you used to run in, and that is intersectionality. It is a term and a strategy that has brought a lot of progressives together by tying different but compatible priorities to each other. Is there a potential for doing the same thing across the lines of the anti-abortion movement and the preservation of life already born, or is the rhetoric already too ubiquitous to allow for that? Yeah, I'm afraid we're we're past that point with the middle-aged and older, um, you know, uh, members of my community who who carry the day because first, uh, you know, they are elders because they carry the checkbook, <laughs> and they most certainly carry the checkbook, whoever has the disposable income or is funding the major evangelical organs of communication. And if you look at the demographics, uh, it's generally 55 and older. So with that crowd, um, I'm not very hopeful at all. In fact, I'm quite pessimistic. But with younger evangelicals, I do think there's the possibility of fostering uh, this new discussion and um, and turning the direction of this very unwieldy ship uh, towards a more salutary uh, path and and uh, and I'm hopeful. Just yesterday, I spoke with Mike Goldsworthy of the post evangelical movement, which actually isn't quite post evangelical in the sense that many still identify as evangelicals, but don't adhere. Uh, to the current social uh, or even uh, doctrinal orthodoxy, there are there are some very strong and organized dissenting voices, and and again that that's the reason um, 
I, I maintain a little bit of hope for the future, the, the mid to distant future. In the immediate, uh, I'm afraid we're lost. Hmm. Wow. So I know that you've given thought to this issue and and the latest massacre in particular, uh, not just as a faith leader yourself, but as president of the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute. I, could you speak a little bit about about this issue uh, from the perspective of someone who is a, an acolyte and admirer of, of Bonhoeffer? Well, sure. You know, the one thing I learned from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who incidentally, you know, was an ordained uh, minister, uh, member of the clergy in, in, in Germany, they used the term pastor, an ordained pastor, in the Evangelische Kirche, the, the Evangelical Church of Germany. Now, that means something a little, no, a lot different <laughs> than what we mean here by evangelical, but there are com- there's a common trunk of the tree there. Um, and evangelicals admire Dietrich Bonhoeffer, this young, brave, brilliant uh, German church leader uh, during the rise of uh, Adolf Hitler and Nazism uh, in Germany and later, of course, in Europe. And uh, he was one of the first dissenting voices and would pay for that with his life at age 39. But he was brilliant. You know, his first dissertation at 21 and his second dissertation at 23. That says a lot for that era in German uh, academia. And um, Bonhoeffer taught me too late in my life. I wish I would have listened to him much earlier, but late in my life and career, uh, I learned from him uh, that that moral relativism is actually a part of the Christian gospel. Uh, I didn't know that. And in fact, I preached and taught and lived uh, to the contrary for, for too many decades. But in this sense, that the moment in time may demand something from us that we find at least uncomfortable and sometimes abhorrent, but it's required in that moment. And and we have to humble ourselves enough to step outside our own preferences, our own demands, our our own... um, fantasies, frankly. Uh, You know, in my uh, 30-odd years, you know, being an evangelical clergy member, I had developed a whole fantastical image of what the world is, and then, then had some very painful experiences meeting reality. And Bonhoeffer deals with this question of reality. So it's a very long way of answering your simple question. And it's this, um, that just because the New Testament says that we can buy a sword, that Jesus allowed his disciples to buy a sword, doesn't mean that we're also allowed to take an AR-15 battle grade weapon into a schoolroom and slaughter tykes, tiny tykes. Some reason in the evangelical mind, absolutes allow for an outcome that that may be um, 
beyond our capacity to to rationalize, to justify, but it just has to happen because we have these God-given rights weirdly, um, you know, codified in a governmental secular instrument, the the Constitution, at least the way American highly politicized evangelicals see it. And what I learned from Bonhoeffer was to separate those things, to to, um, uncouple them. And, uh, you know, I learned, uh, Jack, that um, in the evangelical veneration of the Second Amendment, uh, we often end up violating the Second Commandment uh, against crafting our own uh, you know, idols. And I, and I see the evangelical embrace of gun culture as a form of idolatry. Well, Bonhoeffer helped me uh, to see that. And so Bonhoeffer's Code of Ethics, uh, I think, is a very helpful way of meeting the challenges of our own time. And that's what we try to do through our new institute, imperfectly, of course, as Bonhoeffer said about himself, uh, but we're trying, we're trying. So if anyone's not familiar with Bonhoeffer, you can learn a lot about him at our website, ddbi.org, but it's better to read his magnum opus, Ethics, and then you'll really get how helpful he is in in our own era. I'm smiling uh, not just at your... uh, concise explication of, of what you learned from, from your uh, mentor ancestor. But because just this week I heard a teacher of mine quote Abraham Joshua Heschel about idolatry, and your introduction of it here is important. Heschel said, um, any, any God which is my God but not your God is idolatry. And that's a, it's very relevant to what you just said. You know, uh, the simple truth is countries with far fewer guns have far fewer murders and not just shootings, but killings in general. Well, now you give me a chance to go back to my dear Bonhoeffer because he spoke of the moment, you know, when we can no longer simply bandage the wounds of those who fall under the car that's careening down the mountain, we must seize control of the vehicle. We must, he said, uh, thrust a uh, bar in, into the spokes of the wheel and stop the, the, uh, the, the, the careening uh, danger. I think we're at that point now. We cannot wait for all the stars to align and have more bodies lying dismembered in uh, grocery store aisles or in elementary school classrooms. We we can't. It's so despicable what is happening. It's intolerable. So now we just simply must act. We have to speak. We have to act. I heard some criticism today for Beto O'Rourke's recent confrontation of uh, Texas Governor Greg Abbott in the aftermath of the uh, Uvalde child massacre, is what I'm going to call it. 
uh, and people said he was uncouth and maybe too political, even though they like him. I don't think so. I think we're past time for those sorts of, I like to call them prophetic confrontations. So we speak, we act, and we wait at the same time, um, patiently. Uh, Maybe we deliver some ultimatums, but maybe those ultimatums don't yield anything. And if not, then we just keep acting in a kind of impatient patience. That's the only way I can describe it. So this is a very complicated subject that requires a complicated solution, which means I'm about to ask you a very unfair question. What's, what is the thing you want people to be thinking about in, in just a few words at a time like this? Well, first is what can I do? Um, my wife, Cheryl, kicks me under the table and says, you just talk way too much about Bonhoeffer. So, <laughs> but, but he did say, the question was, what is the will of God for me in this moment? So I right. like to ask that question. What can I do? What can I say? How can I act? How can I influence? It is a time for every person of conscience to do or say something, or both. The Reverend Dr. Robert L. Shank is founder and president of the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute and the author of a powerful change-of-heart memoir titled Costly Grace, an Evangelical Minister's Rediscovery of Faith, Hope, and Love, in which I mentioned, I'd just like to add, Rob, I really appreciate you taking this time to be with us today on State of Belief Radio. Well, thank you. We're just getting started with this week's show. Up next, we'll take a look at the sweeping new report on the Southern Baptists' handling of sexual abuse with Bob Smetana of Religion News Service. And later, Sarah Posner on the nationalistic CPAC cozying up to foreign dictators. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, brought to you by Interfaith Alliance. I'm Wanda Hardy Kidd. I'm a retired campus minister in my late 60s living in North Carolina. A couple of years ago, burdened by grief, I left home alone, a road trip, just me, my truck camper, and a broken spirit. But I found healing in my desert wanderings. This June, join me for the journey again. 30 episodes, a short one each day. Journey Through the Desert, from me, Wanda Hardy Kid, and Good Faith Media. Welcome back to State of Belief Radio. I am Jack Moline, sitting in this week for Welton Gaddy. Award-winning journalist Bob Smetana has been covering and uncovering the way Southern Baptists have been handling charges of sexual misconduct over many years. With the release of a long-anticipated report this week, 
confirming at last, which many have been trying to say, Bob finds no joy in the validation of his work, but is working furiously to make sure Religion News Service coverage keeps up with this dynamic story. Bob, welcome back to State of Belief Radio. Glad to be here. Bob, what is it that happened this week that has everyone talking about abuse and the Southern Baptist Convention? So this past weekend, there was a release of a report uh, that was commissioned last year by the what are called messengers, which are local church delegates from the Southern Baptist Convention, into how its leaders have handled the issue of sexual abuse, in particular at their executive committee, which is a national office that um, kind of oversees the convention during the year. It's not quite the national headquarters, but it's something along that lines. And that report found that uh, basically uh, for years, the staff of the national office had used Baptist polity, which holds that every church is autonomous as a way to say that sexual abuse was not their problem. And they sought to basically protect their liability. And that that meant mistreating sex abuse survivors, not talking to them, looking the other way, uh, calling them part of a satanic flat plot. And that's what they did. So you've written about these charges for a long time and about the denials that have been swirling around the SBC and other close-knit religious bodies and the frustration of watching the obvious be denied time and time again. Would you share just a little bit of your history with this story? Sure. So I began covering the Southern Baptist Convention in 2007, right about the time they were looking uh, at um, putting together a database. There had been an ABC News report about abuse in the convention and other Protestant groups. And the messengers uh, had said, well, we should look into having a database so that we could track if there's an abusive pastor and they get caught. We, we want to know so that we can check before we hire someone if they're an abuser. And the executive committee, actually the executive committee's lawyer said that we could probably do that. But the other leaders there uh, stymied that. So in 2008, at their annual convention, they uh, announced that, no, we cannot have a database. The irony is I was sitting in the, their um, convention hall, and they had a, actually a database of all the pastors in the convention. So I just looked up on Google, Baptist conviction abuser, found some names, plugged them in the database, found about a dozen people in about an hour, and wrote a story about huh. it. And, and so they had had this list of pastors, which was a directory, and they actually, uh, it turns out, according to this uh, abuse report, that they had a list of pastors who'd been convicted of abuse that they kept secret. So there's been following for a long time. Um, there's been pushes to get them to address abuse. Um, last year it came to a head when, um, ironically, with the, the uh, departure of Russell Moore, who's the Southern Baptist ethicist, he had... Um, after 2019, the Houston Chronicle did a big report on abuse in the church, and people began to say we should do something better. And when Moore began to support survivors, he began to get a lot of pushback, especially if those survivors criticized national leaders. So he released, he, he didn't release a letter. We were leaked a copy of the letter, which did not come from him, about his concerns. And that really got in a lot of uproar which caused some Baptist pastors to say, look, our executive committee has some explaining to do. And let's put together a motion from the floor of the convention that says we need to investigate them. 
You know, some of our listeners are familiar with trying to pull out a tree stump or a, a fence post that's dug deep, and, and it won't budge, and it won't budge, and it won't budge, and then all of a sudden it pops out. What made this report pop out finally at this time? Uh, a, a number of things happened. I think the uh, the post-2018, so in 2018, uh, Paige Patterson, who's this very famous Southern Baptist leader, was fired from the seminary he ran because he had mistreated a uh, student who'd been raped and tried to cover it up. And uh, there's, a, there's a line of him saying he was going to break her down, get her to, to not talk about the charges. He ended up being fired. That, then the, we had this Houston Chronicle report. And then we had uh, a kind of a lament. So the, the, in the air is that, that w- there was an acknowledgement that there was a problem. And these concerns that the executive committee had been mistreating survivors had been um, circulating for a while. But the Moore letter um, really sort of brought that to the surface. That and the departure of Beth Moore, who was a famous um, is a very well-known Baptist um, Bible teacher. Uh, she left the convention in part because she was sort of harassed out of it. And uh, at one point she had talked about being, um, right after the Houston Chronicle report was released, she talked about preaching at a church. And so, and all of a sudden, nobody wanted to talk about a sexual abuse. They wanted to talk about, you know, Beth Moore and women preachers who were, you know, going to threaten the church. So this was all in the air. But when Russell Moore's letters came out, that came out, that really pushed people to say, wait a second, what on earth have our leaders been up to? They have been telling us all along we can't do anything. We don't think that's satisfactory. So last summer, they put together a, um, a motion to say, and the Southern Baptist Convention is a democratic body run by Robert's Rules of Orders and Bylaws. So they got up, if you've ever been to a, like a, a church meeting or a community meeting, it's just like those, only with 17,000 people. So they get up. They say we want to have an investigation. Uh, the, the executive committee, from the minute they heard someone say investigation, tried to cut it off. First, they started by saying, well, we'll just do our own investigation. Then they tried to refer the motion to have an investigation to a committee. And actually, th- this investigation pretty much was dead in the water last summer for about three minutes till one pastor got up and said, I would like to make a motion to overrule the, the chairman and say that we should have this, we should have a vote on this investigation. And, and the minute he said that there was kind of an uproar in the crowd, they have a vote, almost everyone, they have little yellow cards they use to, uh, to indicate they're voting. So the whole, there's a sea of yellow cards, almost no against it. And, you know, uh, the next day, or actually a few hours later, they voted to get the investigation going. That's really something. Are are we seeing a level of accountability um, that is commensurate with what was in the report and what seems to be the will of the convention at that gathering? I it remains to be seen because uh, the leaders of the convention tried very hard to stymie this report. Even after, so one of the key points was that they were going to waive attorney-client privilege because a lot of this back and forth about how to deal with abuse was, was included communications with the lawyers. And even after the messengers said, you should waive attorney-client privilege, the, the executive committee fought very hard not to do that because they didn't want anyone to see what was in the report. They didn't want anyone to see what was in the communication with lawyers. And they certainly didn't want that to become public. 
So now that it's public, there is a push to respond uh, and to say yes. I think one thing that's really remarkable about this, this is, I think, the first time in covering abuse that I remember that a basically a congregation or lay people have had a say. So in the Catholic Church, the bishops decided and the lay people voted with their feet, you know, and went didn't stop coming to church and maybe their pocketbooks, but they didn't have an actual process vote at big mega churches like uh, Willow Creek or Mars Hill, where there's been abuse. There was no one who could get up and say those churches are run mostly by from the top down here. You had a place where the leadership, uh, where the group of lay people had a chance to vote and they voted overwhelmingly that we want to know what you've been up to and we want to treat our people. Well, now the, the problem will be, can this be, um, can this happen? Uh, there does seem to be, there's going to be a hotline. There's going to be some commitment to investigating concerns we'll just have to see but there is at least motion to say that this this can't uh, and a repudiation of the past so there's motion to say that we can't do what we did in the past uh will it have enough mo- momentum to carry it forward we don't know i i don't want to call these merely cosmetic changes but they're not they're not going deep uh with what you've just described is there any indication you've seen that there are going to be lasting changes that might result from these ugly revelations? Again, we'll have to see. I think there will be changes at least that if someone says there will, for at least a short term, if someone says there's an abuse investigation, there's a place to report and um, at least one of the groups. So they they have a, a group called the North American Mission Board, which does church planning and kind of missions in the U.S. They have said that they're going to uh, hire the same committee that did Guidepost Solutions, which did this national report, to investigate any claim. So I think there is more, this movement towards that. Uh, their bigger problem is, you know, uh, every church is autonomous, and there is no one to who can say uh, to those churches, this is how you should handle abuse. And often those churches are run by lay people. They're very small. They don't have the capacity. So there's a lot of education and then there's there's um, just a kind of sea change that needs to happen in the way people see this. That when there's abuse, it's got we got to call the police. This, these people should be disqualified from ministry. Uh, there has been a long time to, as in any group, you want to hide your bad news, let people go um, quietly, cover it up, and uh, you know especially when it involves a church leader. Or pastor, there's been a sense that well, if they confess and said they're wrong, that just is then it's all done. Yeah. So I I want to go just a little bit deeper there. What what is it about the the free church structures of a lot of evangelical congregations that make this kind of accountability particularly hard to establish? Are are there any structures in place that can reduce that problem, or or even proposed that can reduce that problem? It's difficult. Um, there are, you know, there's just, there's a, the belief, there's kind of, there's two things that are happening. One is there's kind of an overconfidence that they have spiritual power to and discernment to do this. And the second is a kind of reluctance to ask outsiders for help. Uh, because some of the groups that, you know, if you're a conservative evangelical, some of the groups that have more structure, say the mainline churches, Catholic churches, are not churches that you see as someone you, as peers. There's people who have different beliefs, they're not someone you're going to ask for help. 
So there's, there's that kind of part. I think there's also the just um, one of the, I'd say one of the problems is that it's very difficult if you have a pastor who preaches every week, who's a person who shows up in your hospital, is, is someone that you revere and you kind of, who is someone who's cared for you, you know, when you're sick or, or did the wedding or did the funeral, they're a beloved figure. It's very hard to think that person did something wrong. And then it's very hard to say, what do we do? Because all of a sudden you find out there's a committee and the committee of lay people, volunteers, they say, wait, our pastor did this. Well, we have to investigate it. And then what do we do? And then people are going to know about it. So there's a, there's a, um, the kind of hands-on involvement of lay people in some ways works against them doing anything because they, uh, you have to get a whole committee of people to decide this. I think it's, sure. in some ways it's just human nature. But people forget that churches are human institutions as much as they're spiritual institutions. And we think about the spiritual part and we think about the ideals and the ethics, but the hard part is like how you put those into practice with fallible human beings. So here's a question you you may or may not be able to answer, but you have more background than most of our listeners. Does the Southern Baptist Convention's looser uh, governing structure make these abuses any more or less possible than in the hierarchical denominations and communities, both in Christendom and, and outside of Christendom? I don't think so. Because if you look at what's the biggest abuse scandal we've seen, the Catholic Church, hierarchical, very top-down, very structured organization. Um, I think that the problem often becomes whatever organization is, there's a problem of what, what they call clericalism, where the clergy are seen as special. There's a potential, uh, uh, and you see this in Protestants and Catholics, and you see it, I'm, I'm sure, in Jewish communities and other communities. The spiritual leader is seen as someone special and above reproach. So if you come along and say this person has acted immorally or illegally and, and injured people, it's hard to, they have all of a sudden, they have, a, they have an esteem level that you have to penetrate. They're like a celebrity. They have the kind of love and affection. It's very difficult to get past that. But I think this, again, it's the human part of religion that um, it's very difficult to see your spiritual leader um, as someone who's flawed and potentially a threat. And we, we see this all the time. You, you have faith in the group, and to question that is very difficult. It questions your identity. It makes you complicit in this. Wait, did we cover this up? Were we misled? It's easier to believe that someone is lying to you than to say, oh my gosh, we have been misled by someone, or someone has betrayed us. Betrayal is very hard to, um, to deal with, especially in religious communities where, where they're built on trust and love and affection. And the idea is you say, that pastor couldn't have done this, or the pastor's kid couldn't have done this. And often these religious leaders, especially when it's abuse of adults, when they have had, so often we have abuse of children. But the second part of this is the abuse of adults, where a, a clergy person has a sexual relationship with an adult member. And people see this as a moral failing or, or as an affair, and they don't see that there's an abuse of power, that the person has, the person didn't get to have sex with that person because they're a great person. The person got to have sex with them because they use their spiritual authority to get access to that person. And that's very hard for people to understand and hard to deal with. And so you want to say, well, it's, you know, and, and some of these some of the evangelical congregations, the woman is seen as a threat. 
they're seen as a temptress. When you see a group of people having being the intermediary between the congregation and God, and there's no one to hold their feet to the fire and say, you have standards and you're accountable, then bad things will happen. Because if you have power, no accountability, then you start to think, oh, I deserve these things, or I can get away with it, or I can, I can, I deserve this because I'm such a good person. And often that's the problem. The clergy people are very wonderful people. They do all these wonderful things. And then they have a secret part of their lives where they're abusive. And people think, well, they were so great. Does it weigh the scales out? We should, we should ignore this. Or they think if we say anything about this, our congregation will close. You know, we'll lose our pastor. We won't be able to replace them. Or, uh, We'll have scandal. No one's going to come to our church. So there, there are all these kind of existential problems that come with admitting this. Listen, there's a long history of celebrating public repentance of abusers on the on the rare occasions they actually get exposed, and of marginalizing survivors. Talk about why that's important to understand. I think it's very important to understand. There's a kind of theatric theatricality to it. And catharsis to it. So we saw this this weekend. Uh, one of the one of the things that happened right after this report is this video went viral of a church in Indiana where the pastor got up and said, "I'd you know they do a they do they did an altar call. They did something called a sinner's prayer where you say you know someone confessed Jesus, so they have this prayer, and then the pastor says, "Well, I have something to tell you, and I you know twenty years ago I sinned." But, you know, and I told the church and I've confessed and, and I'm going to submit to them. I'm going to take a break from ministry. And, you know, and I, I was wrong and I shouldn't have done this. And, you know, the people get up and applaud like, oh, you know, this is what we want. I mean, there's a come, we call it a come to Jesus moment, right? People want to say like, right. there's a crisis. You have to say, I was wrong. I repent. In this case, it can be used to say, they can be used in two ways. One, when the pastor says that, there's a pressure on the, the abuse survivor to say, I forgive you, right? I, 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 you know, Jesus forgive you, so I'll forgive you too. And, and a kind of overlooking of what kind of harm they do and, and do you make amends for that? And what happened next in this church in Indiana is that the person involved, the, the survivor of abuse, got up and said, first of all, I was 16 years old when this happened. It's not an affair. I'm a, I was a kid. And it's this kind of shocking just rebuke of the pastor. And then she walks off and then the church prays for the pastor. There's like, it's the most stunning thing, but it shows, I think the kind of way that works, right? You, the, instead of, instead of the, and it shows the way the church can be pastor centric, right? So if you put the pastor in the middle of the pastor's going to come and repent, what could have happened at that church? Say the church got up and said, look, we fired our pastor or we suspended our pastor because he did these things and he admitted them. And we have some person that he harmed. We're going to work to help that person heal. And we're going to hold this pastor accountable. And maybe someday, a year later, when the pastor has made some amends, they can come back and say they're sorry. But they put the pastor in the center of it. Uh, and that really, you know, what happens is the, the abuse survivors left in the dust. They are seen mm -hmm. as, or they're seen as the person that ruined the pastor's life. You ruined our ministry. Um, and I think there's a kind of the, the, you know, the thing about religion and spirituality is there is a chance to make amends and to get things better and to get forgiveness for things that you can't undo. Those are all good things, but there also is the institutional part to say, okay, you've harmed someone, there are consequences, and we're going to remove you from this 
And we as a congregation are going to take care of the people that you've harmed. And we're not putting you in the char in charge of admitting how it went and how you're going to repent and how we're going to deal with this. Once that happens, you know, there's, there's, and that, that's because it feels better, right? To the pastor, get up and say, I'm sorry, I repented. Sure. Uh, and that couldn't happen for a congregation to heal. But it seems like if you try and do it right away and force feed it, then lots of, uh, lots of damage is done to survivors. And there's also no, um, no accounting for, and also that pastor never changes because they're just like, oh, I'm done. Yeah. It's great. Right. I see. God forgive me. Let's move on. So you, you cover these stories, Bob, from an unusual perspective. You're not merely a consumer of the information and you're not a participant in the process. You're, you're an observer and an interpreter. Can you talk a little bit about the challenges of reporting on this kind of story for religion news service and, and maybe offer a bit of guidance for concerned listeners on where to start working their way through your reporting and that of others to get a clearer understanding of the situation? Great. Yeah. So, there, I mean, we have a lot of reporting up at religionnews.com. We've got a couple explainers about this. Um, the Washington Post does some good work. Uh, Robert Downer in the Chronicle does his work. I think that the big part for people, so this is very difficult uh, for us to cover. And because some of the people who cover, you know, these stories also go to church themselves. Right. And I think one of the things to say, to realize is that um, one of the things that religions teach us is that everyone is flawed. That's the whole point, right? People are not perfect. There are problems in the world and there are going to be problems. And the way you deal with those problems is to face them head on, to look at them honestly, and then figure out what do we do next? So I think that's the one part is to, to have in your mind that that religious institutions and churches, like any other group, is made up of people, and those people are flawed. And that has to be part of your understanding. And the second part is to read, um, like we have a number of stories just about, and the report is available um, publicly, to say, okay, what happened here? And then to say, okay, given that happened, let's move forward. Um, I think there's a kind of idea, but there has to be a lament too. But I think it's really, what we do as reporters is say, okay, we heard this happen. Now we go vet it. We find out what happened. And then we tell you what happened. And it's good sometimes and it's terrible sometimes. It was very difficult. It, it was difficult as a reporter to watch um, the leaders of the convention try to stymie this report. Because we all as reporters knew what had happened for years. We knew that this had happened for years. And when we saw the people of the church say, um, the enough is enough, we want to know, there was a real move to, and we have to, you know, there were, there were concerns that people had about how to move forward this report. Those were legitimate. But there was a real move to say, we are not circle the wagons. And I think that is the, the more that, um, I'll say one more thing. One of the things that happened with the Southern Baptists is this. They got a couple leaders who told them exactly what they wanted to hear. That, oh, there are these abuse survivors out there, but that's a problem for churches. It's not our problem. And we're not going to get sued on it. And that's what our polity says. And so our bylaw says, so you can't do anything. And for too long, those leaders said, oh, okay, that's what it is. And they repeated that line. And nobody ever got a second opinion. Nobody ever said, like, wait, I don't care what our bylaws say. What's the right thing for us to do? And there must be a way for us in our bylaws 
and legally to do something about this instead of saying it allows us to wash our hands. And I think that's mm-hmm. the, the, one of the problems. One of the fears in the survivor community is that people will look at this uh, situation and say, hey, well, this is, this is those two guys. They were the, pro- they were the problem. And yeah. now look at the people who, because those, those leaders were not, they were not doing anything in secret. They were telling exactly what they were going to do. But no one ever said, wait, where, what are our values here? If our values are we care for people and we don't have abuse and our bylaws, we have some bylaws, but those shouldn't say that we don't care about people and we shouldn't take action. We have to inter- use those bylaws ser- serve to further our mission. We don't exist to further the bylaws. Bob Smetana is national reporter at Religion News Service, which has been offering non-denominational, non-partisan, non-profit coverage of religion news for over a century. Bob, this is a tough one, and I thank you for sharing your insights and experiences here on State of Belief Radio. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me on. (laughs) It was Alice Through the Looking Glass. Matt Schlapp and his American Conservative Union, long a megaphone for painting progressives as traitorous globalists, brought the Conservative Political Action Conference to Budapest, Hungary last weekend. The relentless dismantling of Hungarian democracy by strongman Viktor Orban is a source of grave concern for observers around the world. But not for the U.S. right-wing activists and politicians who shared the stage with a prime minister who urged them to mimic the, quote, Christian conservative success of his nation. No stranger to the cognitive disconnect of many in today's public conservative movements, journalist and author Sarah Posner is with us to help with understanding what's going on there. Sarah, welcome back to State of Belief Radio. It's been too long. It has. It's nice to see you, Jack. Sarah, I'm going to introduce a phrase here, international nationalism. Is that what we're looking at here, a revelation at last that love of country seems at heart to be love of power for most of these folks? Well, I think that's true, but I think that I would I would more specifically describe it as the reemergence of fascism. And And talk about the distinction between the two. Well... So obviously, nationalism is a part of fascism, the claim that um, you're trying to, you as the leader are trying to preserve the historic or cultural or uh, history of your country or the heritage of your country. But fascists also employ um, violence, um, demonization of outgroups, potential violence against outgroups. Um, and the suppression of of dissenting uh, political and even religious views. So that's what we've seen in Hungary under Orban's leadership. We've seen all of those things happen. We've seen him uh, demonize uh, Jews and Roma. We've seen him demonize uh, migrants from the Middle East coming into Hungary. Uh, and we've seen him... Uh, engage in a full-on assault of Hungary's democratic institutions like a free press and independent judiciary and free and fair elections. I know a lot of people are 
reluctant to use the F word, but I think there's a lot of evidence that has also been marshaled by experts in fascism and the history of fascism and the philosophy of fascism uh, that show us that this is this is where Orban has taken Hungary. We have a lot of bad actors on the international stage. Why are Orban and Hungary such a concern for the international community? Well, so, you know, after the fall of communism and the fall of the Iron Curtain, uh, the United States was uh, involved in helping to bolster and build uh, democracies in former communist states like Hungary. Um, And uh, that included um, building up civil society and also building up democratic institutions. Um, Hungary is an EU member. It's a NATO member. It's obliged under those institutions to support and carry out uh, democratic values and support and maintain democratic institutions. And Orban has brazenly done the opposite. And uh, what's even more disturbing is that even as uh, uh, democracy watchdogs have uh you know, had their hair on fire, basically, about Orban for many years now, uh, the American right and right-wing movements in other countries see Orban as the prototype of a leader who is taking on what they might call wokeism or gender ide- ideology or political correctness. And he has, from not just this year, this, you know, this was not new with CPAC uh, in Budapest uh, last week, uh, he has really drawn the admiration of many uh, prominent figures on the American right. It's really pretty alarming because these were the same folks who lined up behind the so-called democracy building efforts of previous uh, right-wing American presidents. So it's uh, it's pretty amazing. Who are, uh, who are some of the American conservatives who featured prominently at the CPAC Hungary gathering? Well, as much as uh, he drew attention for um, having uh, featured Orban and Hungary on his television show, Tucker Carlson only sent in a 40-second video for the CPAC attendees to watch of him. But I would say that just having CPAC uh, take place in Budapest instead of Washington um, was just in and of itself uh, an enormous uh, endorsement by the conservative movement of Orban. So when you have Matt Schlapp, who's the president of the American Conservative Union and therefore the face of this leading um, this leading uh, organization in the conservative movement, uh, they're promoting, promoting Orban, promoting Orban policies. It's a sign of this is where the conservative movement is right now. Uh, and, you know, CPAC has always been a until Trump, uh, always been a little bit to the right of the sitting Republican president. Um, But under Trump, it was almost like they had permission to go full bore on their far right views. And uh, so, you know, during the Trump era, you saw um, a greater embrace at CPAC conferences of these anti-democratic movements around the world. Uh, I remember being there, I think it was in 2018, um, when um, Marianne Le Pen, the niece of uh, Marine Le Pen, spoke and everybody loved it. The audience was going crazy for her. Um, so this has been in the works for a while. And I feel like the having actually having the conference in Budapest was was the sort of final, you know, very explicit seal mm. of approval. Interesting. Can you... Uh... 
Can you give us some idea of the messages that the CPAC audience heard in Hungary? Well, I think that um, what you hear from from uh, Orban and people who admire Orban is that uh, traditional values, whether they're Christian values or traditional national values, uh, are under siege by liberalism, by immigration, um, by uh, uh, you know, George Soros is often, you know, portrayed as the, the, the scapegoat enemy of, of what is right and just in their view. Um, they're very anti-abortion and anti-LGBTQ rights. And they talk about that a lot in terms of what gender ideology is, um, is the enemy of, of traditional values. Uh, and I think that um, the fact that conference organizers refused entry to the conference for Western media who sought to cover it um, was a huge red flag about um, their disdain for a free press and their efforts to uh, basically prevent coverage of what they were doing there. Interesting. Was there was there much explicit appeal to religious or spiritual rhetoric? Generally speaking, Orban, who previously did not have a particularly, um, you know, religious background, has definitely invoked Christianity as Hungary's traditional uh, religion, and that he's promoting, uh, you know, Christian democratic values, as he would call it, or a Christian democratic nation, and contrasts that with liberal democracy, which promotes the rights and of all citizens, regardless of their religious background, and promotes uh, human rights and civil rights for everyone. So even before CPAC, many leading figures on the American right very much admired Orban for stating that so clearly. And these are a lot of the same people who claim that America was founded as a Christian nation and that they need to restore America's Christian values after, you know, they were undermined by secularism or liberalism. This was Budapest, but American style culture war issues were front and center. Is, is that about right? You know, I feel like what the the framing there was much more of just this kind of hardcore nationalism slash you know fascism and i'm not like i think that that was more front and center than the religious stuff even though a lot of that is infused with this kind of more generalized idea that you know christian nations are under siege by um you know Islam or secularist values that undermine traditional Christian values. I mean, that is, that has always been the undertone of CPAC too. And CPAC in the United States um, had that undertone, but not as explicitly as say something like the Values Voter Summit, which was always traditionally a lot more focused Mm -hmm. on Christian Mm -hmm. nationalism specifically. But I think that CPAC um, that and and the CPAC in Budapest was very much focused on promoting this kind of far right nationalism as an antidote to liberalism. 
Has the political mainstream in the United States come up with any compelling messaging to push back on some of these ideas, or at least to raise public awareness of, of what's happening and the dangers of this kind of gateway drug nationalism into fascism? Well, it is now the mainstream of the Republican Party, right? So you're not going to see the Republican Party, except for maybe a few dissenters like Liz Cheney or Adam Kinzinger, uh, speak out against that. I mean, it is now the center, basically the mainstream of the Republican Party. And I do think that um, the Democratic Party has been too tepid in uh, naming this and calling it out specifically. I mean, obviously, there are a lot of advocacy groups and activists, including you know the Interfaith Alliance and uh, Americans United for the Separation of Church and State and People for the American Way and others who have been pointing to this. And they've been pointing and other, other organizations and individuals and activists have been pointing to the ways in which Trump specifically undermined our democratic institutions and and more specifically is looking to subvert our elections. But I I worry a little bit that a lot of that has focused too directly on Trump himself. And while obviously, right, Trump's threat to our free elections is a dire one and one that must be combated at all costs. Uh, I think it's also important to understand that he has an entire political party at his back and that they have exhibited not only in their, uh, in their support of Trump, but in their promotion of, of international figures like Orban, um, that they are not only okay with or comfortable with this kind of far-right nationalism, they actually would prefer it to the liberal democracy that we have here or we used to have here. We, uh, in this country, tend to conflate everybody on the right as having a an identical agenda with just different uh, gift wrapping around it. But you've mentioned both uh, the the conservative CPAC community and the and the religious value voter communities. Are there conflicts between those two communities, and and what would the result be if if they erupted into uh, disagreement on a public issue? Well, there aren't disagreements. Um, you would see some overlap in, say, speakers at both conferences. You would see um, some um, coverage of issues like abortion or LGBTQ rights um, at, at, at CPAC, whereas at the Values Voters Summit, it would something like that would be more front and center. Um, and there was a period, I want to say, maybe around 2015, 2016, when it seemed like CPAC was maybe headed in a direction of being more open to LGBTQ rights, but that's all faded away now. Um, but I don't, I don't think that there's any um, any major issue that they disagree on. They don't, uh, they don't disagree on, say, guns and their opposition to gun control. Um, they, um, I don't, I don't think that, say, the argument that the separation of church and state is a myth is something that takes front and center at CPAC conferences, but it certainly does at values voters conferences, but it's not something that CPAC would spend a lot of time contesting. Um, so they each have their own issues that they focus more specifically on, but it's not like they're going to be in some kind of major 
fight over anything. And in Maine, at the moment, from what you can see in terms of their uh, public statements and what goes on at their conferences, they're all in favor of um, a, a strong-armed judiciary, um, uh, questioning election results, um, in 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 imbuing political campaigns with Christian nationalist rhetoric and iconography. And, um, you know, the religious right is very much behind what we're seeing in state legislatures now in terms of the um, elimination of uh, abortion rights and the attacks on, on trans rights in particular. Uh, but, you know, it's not like you would see CPAC saying, oh, we, maybe we shouldn't be doing those things. They're, they're, all, uh, they're all on board with that. And that's consistent with um, their admiration for Orban, too, who, um, mm-hmm. you know, also... Um, has um, attacked LGBTQ rights in Hungary. It's an important observation that you've made because uh, sometimes, particularly in the field that we're working in, our defense of the right of faith communities to hold to their own values can sometimes obscure that they can be in league with people who really have malice toward the principles that that make America the democracy that it is uh, supposed to be. So I thank you for that. What what else should our should our listeners be aware of regarding these affiliations and alliances that are taking place internationally? Well, I think you know internationally, democracy is under attack, um, and that's in part because of the rise of these far right movements that have gained a foothold not only in the United States but in many parts of Europe. Um, and, you know, I would say insufficient um, pushback, not only from the United States, which, you know, under Trump did nothing to uh, try to uh, hold Orban back, which was a which was a departure from the previous Republican president, George W. Bush, who did try to pressure Orban to uh, back away from attacking democratic institutions and values. Um, and I think with the with the uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the uh, Russian facing and Putin supporting aspects of um, of these far right movements are very important to keep an eye on, too. But I think, you know, this this nationalism that is definitely coming into vogue doesn't always have a religious tinge to it, but much of it is driven by Christian nationalist ideologies and um, it's important to see the ways in which the, the religious uh, component is being used to fuse these um, alliances in promotion of nationalism and ultimately also, you know, fascism. Sarah Posner is a reporting fellow with Type Investigations and author of the books Unholy, How White Christian Nationalists Powered the Trump Presidency and the Devastating Legacy They Left Behind. And God's Prophets, that's P-R-O-F-I-T-S, God's Prophets, Faith, Fraud, and the Republican Crusade for Values Voters. Sarah, thank you very much for being with us again on State of Belief Radio. Thanks for having me, Jack. That's all the time we have for this week's show. Your donations help keep us on the air. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. 
Stay up to date by subscribing to the free weekly State of Belief podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. And take a moment to follow us on Facebook and Twitter and be a part of the conversation. Social media helps connect like-minded people in conversation and company. I ask you to share State of Belief with just one person this week for whom you think this might be helpful. Our producer is Ray Kirstein. State of Belief Radio is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week for more stories from the intersection of religion, government, and politics. Until then, go team. I'm Jack Moline. That's State of Belief. I think it's time we stop, children. What's that sound? Everybody look what's going down.